Welcome back to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley in Context. And today, a special program. It's a one-off program, not a series that we would normally do. But I'm talking to Dr. Admiral Chow. I'm delighted and privileged to talk to him. Dr. Chow is the president, and he's a fellow of the John F. MacArthur Foundation. He has his B.A. in Language and Exposition from the Masters University, an MDiv from the same a THM from the same, and a THD in Old Testament. For those of you that don't know, the THD program is a theology doctorate, not unlike a PhD, but with a more precise focus on theological studies. He became full-time as president, effective May 6th of this year, 2022. I've heard nothing but great things about Admiral. We've not met, and uh, we at Stonebridge Bible Church are privileged to have a number of folks who are fleeing California, I mean, who've moved from California to the uh, Middle Tennessee. And we have a lot of one-degree uh, separations from his work with Michael Rydelnik and Ed Bloom's book, some Moody publications that he's been involved with. But the reason I want to talk to Dr. Chow today is not about the Master's University or seminary. I want to talk to him about this thing that one of his elders handed to me about six, eight weeks ago. And what's it called, Abner? Tell people what this thing is. It's a new translation of the Bible called the Legacy Standard Bible, which is a derivative, an update, but mainly meant to preserve what you have in the New American Standard Bible, particularly the 1977 edition and the 1995 edition. That's why it's called the Legacy Standard Bible, because its goal is to both promote the tradition and the philosophy of translation that those translations held fast to, that a traditional philosophy that goes back far beyond and far before the New American Standard ever came out. But it is primarily meant to, in addition to promoting that, it is to preserve it for future generations to come. When I was at Dallas Seminary 100 years ago, the Lockman Foundation was not willing to allow the Bible Knowledge Commentary, which was their two-volume contribution, to use the NASB for their commentary. And I know also the MacArthur Study Bible, the first iteration of that, he ended up using New King James. And that's not meant to be unkind or disparaging, but the Lockman Foundation has some very precise rules on who and why they allow their translation to be used. And, oh, by the way, they tend to be very expensive when they do allow it. So I love Lockman. I have been a NASB guy since uh, probably, I'm, I'm probably a lot older than you, but I know the first NASB I received was my first year in college. So that would have been 1979, 80. And, uh, you know, we talk about King James onlyism. I'm a NASB onlyism. You know, I love, you know, reading the Net Bible and these other things when I'm doing English teaching, but my problems are manifold with these other translations. So when Rich gave me this Bible, I said, well, we need another translation like a hole in the head. He goes, wait a minute, look at what they've done. So somehow you did a handshake with Lockman to take the advantages, primarily the 95 update. Why? Why wasn't the 2020 sufficient? Start. What was the impetus for you and others to say, we need this new imperature called the Legacy Standard Bible? Well, Michael, the questions that you're asking are really apropos, and I resonate and empathize with your sentiment that we need 
another translation like a hole in the head because in the providence of God, several months, just months before the entire Legacy Standard Bible project commenced, an individual came up to me and said, well, would you like to translate the term doulos as slave? Do you think that that's appropriate? And I said, absolutely. He said, would you like to translate the Tetragrammaton in the Old Testament as Yahweh so that people know what that means and they can address God by his personal name? I said, absolutely. And we went back and forth and, and there were many discussions about a new improvements on translation. He says, well, what would happen if I just helped you to do your own translation? What would that what would it take to do that? And I and I laughed. I said, it's going to take minimum six years. There's no way it can be done. We don't need another one. We could just explain it. It's fine. And so I had the exact same mentality that you do that I know so many others do. And lo and behold, several months after that, maybe even just two months after that, I walk into Dr. MacArthur's office and he said, hey, Lockman has offered us to do our own translation, derivative and, pre and preservation of the NASB. You want to do it? And, and I just kind of looked stunned and I said, well, okay. He says, how about a year? Whoa. I said, okay. And that's kind of how it all began. And, and it illustrates this is of the Lord. This wasn't because it was something we aspired to in the sense that we thought, yeah, that's what our end goal is going to be. We want to do another English translation. This was put in our lap. And there were some significant disagreements in the direction of where the NASB 2020 is heading. We understand why they're doing what they're doing, sure. but we believed that the 95 and the trajectory that it was on was the better trajectory uh, for certain usages for people to study and grow and to be expositors and to listen to expository preaching, preaching that focuses on the words of Scripture and the individual words that caters and forces us back to the original text as opposed to just catering something to the reader. In light of these kinds of realities, Lachman very generously said, well, if that's your conviction, would you want to do your own? Would you want to try and have a stab at that? And like you mentioned, that is of the Lord. It wasn't something we had planned on. And having seen the Lord's good hand in it all, we just responded and went to work. And it was a really joyful work, even though it was really intense. So I've got a whole list of questions, and I always like to help our listeners understand formal equivalency versus dynamic equivalency. So I've given my definition many times on the podcast. Let's hear Dr. Chow's uh, simple definition of the difference between a formal equivalent translation versus a dynamic equivalent translation. If I could summarize the difference between formal versus dynamic, I would say it this way. A formal equivalence emphasizes what the text said, the very words involved, the very grammar involved. It is designed to be a correspondence to as many features of the original text as possible. A dynamic equivalent, while still attempting some connections with what is said, of course, emphasizes why it is said. Not just the words and their correspondence, not just the grammatical features and their correspondence, 
but it is trying to equally convey the ideas that are conveyed by the combination of those features. And so one emphasizes what is written, what has been written, and the other one emphasizes what that says, what that means. And those are some differences. And of course, you can't get away from one to the other, but mm -hmm. nevertheless, those things matter because sometimes in a conversation, when we summarize, we ask people the question, is that exactly what that guy said? Is that Are those the exact words that that person said? And we could say, well, it's close. It's not exactly the words, but that's the idea of it. That's the gist of it. But sometimes we need to know exactly what someone said because that precision matters, because that precision makes a difference, because that precision is deliberate and can change the nuances and implications and ramifications of what was articulated. Hence, a dynamic equivalence translation aims to give why something is said and the gist of what is said as close as they can to retaining what is said, but a formal equivalence emphasizes a tight correspondence with what is said so that you know what was written in the original is reflected exactly or as close as we can possibly get to what is in your translation. So I want to camp on that last phrase because there's no such thing as a literal translation from Hebrew to English or Aramaic to English or Greek to English because nuances, idioms, expressions, I'm pretty pedantic with our church, Abner, and I explain transliterations like the word baptism or camel or whatever, but I'm also careful to say uh, a formal equivalent is more wooden. There were charts, and I'm sure you're very familiar with these, years ago that had these little, you know, King James and New America Standard were like 12th grade educated readership, and the NIV and so forth were like 7th grade. Uh, equivalent. And I, I've read recently that that needs to be dropped down even further because we're just not, folks aren't learning to read. That being said, is it really that important to have a literal rendering that's a little more wooden as opposed to one that's dynamic? And, and the illustration I use is the ESV, which I'm not mad about. The ESV uses so many different synonyms for the word chesed, which I argue is the single most important word in our Old Testament to understand loving kindness, ESV at least went with steadfast love. But when they went with love or favor or mercy, they use a whole cadre of synonyms, Abner. And when I'm reading, I want to know every time chesed appears. I want to know every time hen appears. And as an English reader for our churches, they don't have the advantage that you and I do of reading the original text or using tools and go, oh, yeah, that's, not what that, that's not what that word is. So how important is that, is my question to you, to say, to gloss it, to smooth the reading like the NIV does? What's wrong with that? Well, let's take a step back and okay. kind of help even rephrase and put a good metaphor, I would say, or analogy on the notion of a formal versus dynamic equivalent translation. An analogy I like to use is the analogy of a window. And when you look through a window, the goal is to look to the other side. And the goal of a formal equivalent translation is to be as clear of a window, as transparent of a window as possible. 
so that when you look through it, you can see the other side of the original text and you can project and assume and maintain and expect that the original text reads and has been written a certain way. Dynamic equivalence says sometimes, though, maybe some people need a little bit of help. They need a little bit of clarification. And so instead of being transparent glass to behind the original text, its goal is to be a little bit more like stained glass, to give you the picture as they see it and want to describe it, to help you out a little bit so that it clues you in on what the original text was meaning, why it said what it said. And you might say, well, why do we need a transparent translation now to segue back into the original question? And the answer goes back to theology. It goes back to our belief about the nature of Scripture. We believe that the Bible is inspired. We believe specifically in verbal plenary inspiration, that every single word of the Scriptures, down to the last jot and tittle, is from God, deliberately crafted and designed and meant by him. Yes, to be sure, man wrote scripture, but that was under and being carried by the Spirit, such that what they said is from God. That's what 2 Peter 1 reminds us. To put it simply, man's words, our God's words, are the same words. There is no difference between any of them. And Joshua even reminds us in Joshua chapter 23 that no good word of all of the words that God promised ever failed. God is precise to the word. And therefore, because every word matters, because every word is from God, and because we know we are held accountable, not just to the ideas of scripture, not just to the general meaning of scripture, but to every single word we are held accountable, it is incumbent upon translators to provide people the words of scripture that God meant and deliberately designed and chose, and the words that we're going to be held accountable to. This is why we want to be as clear of a window as possible, so that people know this is that word. This is what was said. It helps people to know the word of God better. You mentioned chesed, loving kindness, and the various synonyms that are used. And when various synonyms are used, you don't know. You can't be sure if the word behind the translation, if you can see through the glass and know, yes, that's chesed there. Think mm -hmm. about this. What happens if you translate a phrase that has the word love, achava, and then the word chesed as steadfast love? Right. Now you're going to reach a problem because it's odd to say, oh, yes, God has steadfast love and love. You already right. said he had steadfast love. So why do you need to repeat the word love? We need to know and that no, these are two separate words, two separate ideas. And if we don't have a consistent translation, a translation that can even pair with other words and phrases in a text, we need to make sure all of that can come together so that every time a word is used, people can say, I bet it's that word. Guarantee it's that word. I know it's that word because we're held accountable to these words. And we want to know sometimes there are specialized terms that carry such rich and deep theology. We want to make sure we know that that word is in the text. And on top of all of that, the priority of this theology is even seen in the translation of the Bible, say in the Greek text of the New Testament. 
sometimes in the Greek translation of the New Testament, it is so woodenly literal that it's very, very difficult for a Greek person at that time to read. Why? Because words matter. Because the construction mattered. That was the overriding concern. It wasn't readability. It was accountability. And in the same way, you could even say in the original writing of the text, sometimes the original reader might have said, this is a little bit awkward to read. This is a little bit hard to read for me. But yet, that's the way God chose to write it for theological reasons. And so by making it more readable in that regard, we're actually making it something different than even what the original readers would have experienced. Is there a place for paraphrase and versions? There are a lot of tools in our toolbox that we can use. And so having said everything that I just said, far be it for me to say, hey, there's no room for anything else than what I've just said. We recognize that synonyms are useful. If you're trying to explain what loving kindness means, Sometimes other translations, filling in different phrases and different words, bringing out nuances, that's helpful for explanation. There are tools that the expositor uses. There are tools that a Bible student uses. There are tools that a believer uses in Bible study, and translations can fall in that. And we are not saying that there's only one tool. What we are saying is, hey, there is a philosophy of translation that may be a base, and from that point, Yes, we are so thankful for the efforts of so many to afford us many, many avenues, many, many instruments that can help us study. There are times when we might even say to young children, hey, start with this. It's going to give you a paraphrase and it's going to give you the ideas. It's a pedagogical tool at that time. And we know that inherently because as preachers and teachers, we don't just stand up there on Sunday morning and just read the Bible and say goodbye. We explain it. We expound on it. We give the depth of it. That's part of God's design for the church. That's an instrument. And in some ways, a lot of translations are more interpretive translations or dynamic or whatever term we'd like to have. They're assisting in that process. Um, I want to come back to the interpretive translations, but uh, one of the things, Abner, I have overstated it every church I've, I've been privileged to serve is please read the introductory pages on your NASB and I read the first thing when Rich Harrisack gave me kindly a beautiful copy of this I went home and read the introductory and I actually pulled out my NASB side by side and we'll talk about the differences in just a moment I'm a little bit chagrined sad discouraged that more Christians don't take about six minutes to read the introduction of the Lockman Foundation's standard for the translation because they talk about many of these things we've just mentioned, and even Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, which my Jewish Christian friends don't like when I say that word for obvious reasons, down to Lord, Lord God, Adonai, God. You know, why do we have Elohim, Adonai, you know, Adonai, El I mean, why do we have these and how you articulated well, if God intended us to say Yahweh, you know, or Adonai, it would be good in our circles. We talk about Kathiv Kare, what was written versus what was spoken, because uh, some of the pious Jews did not want to say the word Yahweh for obvious reasons. And if that's new to you, uh, when you're saying the I am, it can sound pretentious and pious if you say I am. 
so the way they would do it was that if you read a Jewish text, for example, sometimes it'll have the letter G and then an underline and then a small D because they don't want to get close to the word Elohim or Yahweh. Not my point. My point mainly is reading that. The other part that people miss is the literal. When I compared in my little, you know, cursor review, I didn't look for a document. Oh, I did. I couldn't find one. But if I go side by side, my 95, I've not gone to the 2020. The things that I noticed, and correct me, it seems like you adopted for the literal word more often than the one. So again, folks aren't always familiar, but in your center column or side column, if you have a reference Bible, it'll often have the in italics, L-I-T, lit, and there'll be a number, not a letter, that will correspond to your column, and it might have, it'll have a literal rendering, which I've always preferred. And I find it interesting that on the Legacy Standard Bible, it seems, correct me, you chose to use the literal renderings, not the ones that NASB has been using all these years. That's correct. We wanted to, and the motto of the team was, put the note in the text. So if there was a literal this, and we can make it make it sense, we could make it work, then we want it there. We want it there as much as possible. Sometimes that wasn't possible because it would be obscure. And so we needed to reflect, this is the literal, this is what was written down in the original text. And sometimes we had to maintain that. But as much as possible, we wanted to move that into the text so that it's the first thing that people see. And eventually, they start. we start to build a vocabulary from that. Because when you start to see the words used the same way, and those words are the same words that you have in the original text and they're just repeating and you see the context that they're used and the nuance they're used in when, and it builds a mental dictionary, a mental encyclopedia, as it were, of now I know the nuances of that word. Oh yeah, that word, that, I bet that was the same word found here. Mm-hmm. And most likely it is the same word. And now you're building up a repertoire of nuance, of depth, of color commentary on these individual terms and phrases, and that's the entire goal, which is why we wanted to be as consistent and move those literal notes from the NASB into the main text of the Legacy Standard. Talk to me a little bit about the divine pronoun, because this has been an aggravation for me. Uh, I'm, a, I'm an avid supporter. I'm a poster boy for Logos, and it frustrates me no end that they have taken all the the uh, divine pronouns out of the commentaries save the new American standard. Correct me. I don't think any Bible has stayed with the capitalization of the divine pronoun. And just for clarification, what I mean by that is you, your, he, him, when it refers to God or Jesus, they have taken that capitalization away to a lowercase. And I don't mean that as some genuflect to, we have to always capitalize the name of God or Jesus What I mean, Abner, is if I'm reading wisdom literature, if I'm reading a narrative, I may not know who the antecedent is and who that pronoun him or he or you, especially in Psalms and wisdom literature, who's he referring to? So the NASB and the Legacy Standard Bible has been faithful to maintain the divine pronoun. Am am I off on this? Expand on that. Why is that good? Why is that wrong? Our goal is always to help the reader understand what was written in the text. 
And so when there is an explicit grammatical connection between a pronoun and the referent God, we maintain the capitalization just like with the New American Standard. It's part of preserving that legacy, but it's also very useful for the reasons that you mentioned to the reader so that they would know this is referring to Yahweh. This is referring to God. This is not the human spirit, but the Holy Spirit. Yes. We want to make sure that those things are clear so there is no confusion. Uh, and But we also want to be cautious. If there are times when we cannot be 100% dogmatic, we will err, and the NASB did this as well, on the side of caution and keep it lowercase but with a footnote. That yes. says, or capitalize, because it's always easier for the preacher or teacher to say, this word means God. This is referring to the Lord. Then it is to say, now this text looks like it's talking about God, but it's not. That is much harder to articulate. So it's always easier to intensify than it is to retract something where you've come to the conviction, actually, this pronoun does not necessarily refer to God. And, and so in light of that, we... If there's any doubt whatsoever, we would still maintain something lowercase with a footnote to provide ample opportunity for intensification. Well, and and even in, and you know, I don't teach pastors like you guys do, but for years I did workshops and I would say you're always, that you don't lose any credibility with your audience, your Sunday school class, whomever you're teaching to say, folks, um, we're pretty sure this is a reference to God. We're not certain. Kiss the sun. Right. I don't think we'll live long enough to know what that means or who the referent is. And I will tell people, think about it this way. If it means the Son of God, what is the outcome of interpreting that passage? If it means the Son, what does that mean? And then I'll bifurcate and I'll go, you know, either of these outcomes is not heresy. It's not wrong. I used to tell pastors, use the word seems. You're a lot safer. It seems to me. This is a reference to God. It seems to me this might be a reference to a man, especially in wisdom literature. Proverbs would drive you nuts if you don't have the divine pronoun, in my opinion. And for the English reader, if I want it to be accessible and attainable and retainable, I want them to know when it's talking about God. And yes. uh, you know, and sometimes it is a, a judgment call. But anyway, that's that's one of my axes to grind. Um, I had done a podcast some time ago, and Hannah, we might put this in the show notes, where I talked about Bibles from Smith's Own to Yap to Genuine Leather to, you know, Bake Leather, which we can talk about formats if we have time. But my, my concern, again, is this is the one document on the planet we ought to have that's accurate and reliable and trustworthy. And woe to those who make it obscure or indifferent or gloss over it. So, so let me go back, changes between 95 and 2020 and why the legacy standard? Yeah, one of the major changes of the 2020 concerned the use of, I think what Lockman wanted to say was gender accurate. Maybe that's how they would like to put it. And so you'd have brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters throughout the 2020. That was a major problem. I think there are several reasons for that. One is because the original text doesn't have that language, but it can. Sometimes, for example, in James, we have the words and sisters. So if the Bible wanted to use that language, it could have. It chose not to for very specific reasons. And by 
adjusting our language, we may inadvertently, and I'm not not trying to get at the motives of one person or another, so I'm saying it's inadvertent, we may start to ingrain in our people a different paradigm, a different way of thinking than the Bible has articulated. And we want to just, the safest way is to let, if you need the pastor to explain, let the pastor explain. That's the biblical model. That's why pastors and teachers exist. They are there to explain the Bible. It is our job as translators to give you what is written, what the Bible says. So if the word sisters is not there, then we shouldn't really put it in. We should just keep the word brothers there. I appreciate you talking about not judging motives, and I won't mention the translation in, in mind here that I'm referring to, but I was involved from a distance with very close friends on two different big projects and I took friends who were brothers in Christ to task, especially on First Corinthians chapter five, verse uh, uh, chapter six, verse nine. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, be deceived. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, passive homosexual partners, practicing homosexuals. Now, you know Greek, and I do too. NASB says homosexuals and effeminate, and most other English translations have coddled this, and this is just one, passive homosexual partners and practicing homosexuals. And I, I took a dear friend on on this. I said, why are you doing this practicing homosexuals? It's not in the text. I said, if you wanted to be consistent, you'd say practicing, uh, passive, practicing adulterers, practicing adulterers, practicing sexually immoral, but you just you singled out that. And he said to me, quote, we don't want to offend. And I threw up my hands. I said, are you kidding me? You're and putting a word that's not in the Bible, in the Bible, because you don't want to offend a people group. And, uh, and I'll, I'll just call it out. ESV chose to put practicing homosexuals in there as well. And I went back to my Greek and bag and kittle, and I studied those till I was blue in the face. And I called my friend who was on one of the committees. I said, why are you doing this? And Abner, their answers were so disheartening. On the one hand, I get it. You know, they don't want to be unkind or unloving. But I'm also going, well, are you being unkind and unloving by not telling the truth? So that's my rant. So you can respond, correct me, jump in here. No, I, I understand uh, the sentiment. And, and again, it goes back to remembering the mission, remembering the purpose of why we're doing what we're doing as either translators or preachers and teachers. And this is not things that are up to us. I don't have the right to translate the word of God the way I want to or to prevent offense. I have the obligation, though, to translate it accurately so that the word in a transferred understanding is matched. There is correspondence that what you see is what you get. And that's incumbent on us. And do we always do a perfect job? No, of course. We can always learn to improve. But fundamentally, our standard doesn't change. And we have to remember that. And as a preacher and teacher, we have to remember we are not here to please men. We are here to glorify God. And what we say, especially in a changing culture where Christianity has moved from something that was normal to something that was neutral and now to something that's negative 
it's going to be more and more offensive. It's going to stand out more and more by contrast. It's actually going to go back to what it always has been throughout the majority of church history. And we can't lose heart by that. We just have to, to remember, we just continue to do what we're supposed to do and trust the Lord for him to use this for his glory and the salvation of souls. That's our mission. That's our responsibility. And we can't control the outcomes. We can only control what we're supposed to be doing before the Lord as he's assigned us to do. And that goes into translation and preaching and teaching. And that, yes, covers how these situations should play out as well. Back to other changes besides the addition of brothers and sisters, other things that were differentiating between 95 and or 2020 or the Legacy Standard Bible. There was a lot more of an increase, and Dr. MacArthur immediately noticed this, of the ambiguity or what we call the multivalency of words. The idea is this word could be translated this way and that way and that way and that way and that way. You give a lot of glosses or a lot of possibilities, and the idea is do you really know what this word means? Does anyone know what this word means? What What's going on here? And while options in some situations can be nice in life, when it comes to Bible translation, we want to give the most accurate gloss as possible and stand confidently upon that. And if we give an alternative, there needs to be a real reason for that. Mm -hmm. It isn't just because we don't know what this word means or we want to give that impression of let's all just get along but right. sometimes I'll give you an example of when the Legacy Standard Bible uses or language. There are often the designation of literally it's this, and sometimes or it means this. A major reason the Legacy Standard Bible might give or is because, let's say, within a certain book, there's a wordplay going on. And we really need to keep it consistent within that book. But then we know, oh man, but there's a great cross-reference with another book. We can't get it all to fit together just because English, it's got limitations. So what do we do? We keep it consistent within the book so that people can see the repetition right in front of their eyes. We put a footnote that says, or, and we give an alternative translation because we know that that's the translation in a different passage elsewhere with a cross-reference so that you can stitch everything together, kind of like a big crossword puzzle. That's a reason, a legitimate reason to use or, because there are ramifications within the translation for the sake of consistency that you need to make connections and help the reader out. It's not always helpful, though, just to list every possible gloss or every possibility over and over. It can actually dishearten the reader because they say, do we really know what this word means? Do we really have any certainty at all? And it begins to feed the ideology that, well, Bible's unclear. We can't ever know what it means. And it's just a bunch of interpretive possibilities, and we can never reach a conclusion, almost what Paul warned against about those who keep learning the truth but never reaching it. That is the danger that we wanted to avoid in the Legacy Standard Bible. So minimizing unhelpful or misleading notes and amplifying the notes that actually help Bible study. That's kind of our goal. You know, it's interesting. Uh, you are familiar with the Amplified Bible. Yes. That uh, Lockman did many, many years ago, and it was the kitchen sink. 
they put every word in there that might have been and or. <laughs> yeah. And it was kind of comical to read it because it was, there were times I thought, well, this is kind of helpful. And times I thought, this is sort of like reading just jambalaya here because I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to take away. I appreciate your comment about helping the reader. And this has been, again, one of my axes to grind over the years is it might take a little time to get through that wooden phrase, but it's the best time you'll ever spend. You know, it's That's not a great way to put it. Yeah, the objective is not Harlequin romance novels. The objective is the very word of God. And because we have this problem called Babel, and because we were given the Bible in primarily two languages, a small portion of the Old Testament, a little differently. But at the end of the day, it seems like the clarity of this would be our main concern. Let me shift over and talk about format, because... Legacy has done some pretty interesting things online. So, for example, Rich Harrisack, the beautiful Bible he gave me, has no references, no cro- no nothing. And he said, that's called a speaker or a preacher's Bible. And I went, huh, okay, I can put notes in the margin. But I'm going, this is not what I want to give our folks. I want our folks to have cross-references and so forth mm-hmm. and so on. Legacy Standard Bible has put quite a few online resources. So talk a little bit about what's available to a person uh, when they buy the legacy standard. As you mentioned, Bible format, it matters. It, it's important and not just for carryability or visibility to your eyes, although that's very important. I recognize if you can't see the text, then you can't read it. But there are a variety of formats available from single column to dual column Putting notes in the margins as you have in a NASB reference Bible, that matters too. We worked hard on those notes. Like I said, those notes are meant to help the reader out to make connections so that you can say, oh, I see the repeated pattern of this phrase, and oh, wow, I can't believe it, but that phrase is repeated over here too, and I'm supposed to connect these passages together. It's scripture, comparing scripture with scripture. We're assisting in that process, even on a linguistic, a language level. So we want those notes available for people. And you can, in the print version, those notes haven't come out yet, though they'll come out soon. One of the nice things is that what we're going to have is what we call an inner column reference. So instead of putting the notes on the outer margin of a single column on the where you normally would write down notes, we're going to put them on the inside toward where the spine of the book okay, would be. Let, let me interrupt you. 35 years, this has been my dream format. You put all the cross-references in in the inside spine because you're not referring to them all the time, and you want the landscape available. So I commend you, commend you for that format change. Sorry. No, no, no. Praise the Lord. I'm so thrilled. A lot of our translators and Steadfast, the kind of parent company of this, powwowed together, and there was a big push for this, and everyone was – I'm very so united in that effort, and, it's and so I'm it's thankful that people are appreciative, and I'm appreciative. I think that's the way to go for the very reasons that you said, which is this is reference. You're not going to look at every single thing in that column. Why waste it on the outer margin where you're opening the text, and that's where that's you right. can take a note of if you're taking notes from your pastor and he says something really good. You know, you might want to write that in there, or if you're doing your Bible study and you say, you know, I, I take notes 
vociferously in my Bibles, and I, I use my initials, MJE, look at this, you big dummy, you know, or I write a note that's like something I've seen or figured out in the Greek, and I write a note so that when my kids, when they have my Bibles, when I'm gone, will say, oh, right. dad made some comment there, whatever. I treasure that landscape. I interrupted you. Format. No, no, no. That's, that's, I'm so glad somebody's thrilled about this. I'm as thrilled. thrilled. as we are. <laughs> Because that was the entire design. That was the entire hope was to think about the reading experience and to put things on the page where it actually makes sense. It's a tool. It's an instrument. So let's make this tool as useful as it can be and easily usable as it should be. So that's coming out. And those come in all kinds of leather editions, hardback, fake leather, goat skin. So you have everything from premium to more cost-effective availabilities and from pew to pulpit Bible. That's kind of how I kind of summarize it. And then uh, at the same time, there are online electronic resources, Blue Letter Bible. LSB has its own website, read.lsbible.org. There's all kinds of electronic resources, and those are free, so you can access it already. And the translator's notes for example, on Blue Letter Bible, are already present. So you can see that there. On top of all of that, there is an initiative right now where, as translators, whenever we made a decision, we wanted to keep it principally based. In other words, it wasn't just, well, this sounds better, or, oh, this could convey this theological idea. It was, here are some rules. Here's rules of how you translate a word and why it's this way, based upon the lexicon or dictionary, based upon consistency, based upon context, and that dictates this is how it has to be. We wanted things to be very rule-based. Every decision wasn't just because of a preference or a whim. It was because of a principle. As a result of that, we had to do some research because you have to figure out if something really follows this rule or not. And in doing that research, we wrote up notes. Every time we made a change, there was an underlying reasoning and a kind of a lot of research that we wrote. On average, if my memory serves me right, it's easily 80 pages a week, 90 pages single-spaced a week that we typed up as a team for everything that we were doing for 52 weeks minimum. And that's not even counting the emails, which are numbered about 10,000 emails that we exchange as a group. And that's not counting the Google Sheets that we use, which have hundreds of entries per sheet. And we have uh, many, many sheets, one per week, where we're collecting comments from people and doing further research based upon their question. There's a lot of data in that. And so what we've been doing, a team from the Master Seminary has been compiling all those notes. So are you anticipating a bona fide study Bible? And we won't, we won't make it a study Bible in that format. What we might do is something like the Net Bible does, where we publish all of those for free online so that pastors and Bible students and translators across the world, they can see the analysis that we did. And it's not just to say, hey, we proved our point. No, it's to be helpful, to say, sure. hey, here's the resource. And, and now you know the backstory of why this word is. And hopefully in knowing the backstory, you know a lot more theology You know a lot more about this passage, and that's the entire design behind this. And that is a work in progress, and hopefully that will be another resource for people with the Legacy Standard Bible as well. Last comment, and then I'll I'll also give you the last word. I noticed everything is being delayed. 
the publication of these because I was going to go on and order one that had the inside column and get it, you know, put my name on the front so I don't lose it and such. And I'm finding out you can't get them. Uh, so what do you, what are you anticipating with supply chain? Supply chain is always difficult in these times. I experienced that at the university and seminary level as we try to order things and get things done in our infrastructure. And the same thing is true with shipping Bibles from Korea and the Netherlands and other places into the United States. Even just our ports can be jammed and that can cause endless delay as well. So these are some of the factors that cause kind of lag times to increase it's just amazing, and we have to commend and give thanks to the Lord for just even having a Bible, because it's a complex process with a lot of parts, from paper and ink and printing and binding and the leather, all having to come together at a certain point of time with shipping. There's a lot of moving parts, and that is what facilitates and causes, especially with supply chain issues, the delays that we have. I'm sure I'm not eloquently expressing it like I know my friends at Steadfast Bibles would be able to do so. But that, I think, is the sum of the complexities of it. But they're still coming. They're still moving forward. And they're still persevering in all of that. And so I think, if my memory serves me right, uh, some of the next editions of inner column reference and all that should be coming around the time of December. And pre-orders, if they haven't already begun, should still resume and commence pretty soon. Yeah, your your the latest website on three sixteen publishing, it's showing everything in late December, which in my cynical mind means January or March. <laughs> Just knowing how this whole supply chain domino effect. And by the way, again for our listeners, I spent an entire podcast talking about paper and transference of inks and the right type of tools to use and the binding, especially the Smith Zone. I was thrilled to see that Legacy is offering a Smith-sewn Bible. Simply, if you study a Bible, you want your Bible to lay flat. You want your Bible to take notes in and last a lifetime. You want to get a either a leather or goatskin one that's Smith-sewn. The other ones aren't bad, and I actually have friends that buy the uh, inexpensive ones, and they take them to a bindery that will actually do an upgraded sewing because even some of the Smith-sewn Bibles, as you probably have experienced will fall apart. I tell people it's funny. The Bible was from a publishing standpoint, wasn't really meant to be used because <laughs> they all fall apart. <laughs> so I'm glad to see you come up with the Smith. So all, all that to say, any final comments, Abner? Well, thank you for this time. And my prayer for the legacy standard Bible is that it would help people. It build up the church. It would, it would remind us that, Every word of the Bible is inspired. I think one of the major lessons that people say, what, what did you learn during that year of translation when you translated every single word from Genesis to Revelation? And my simple response is, we have no idea how deep the doctrine mm -hmm. of inspiration is. Mm -hmm. The Bible is so perfect. You think, oh, that's just coincidence. Oh, that's, oh, that's just incidental. No, that's never true you begin to realize as you do the statistical analysis and the linguistic work on the Bible that every word really does matter. There are yes. no coincidences. There's no such thing as an incident. That means every word should be studied and can be studied. And that's the beauty of the scripture. It's that perfect. It's that amazing because it's from God. And my hope is that the Legacy Standard Bible becomes a tool that allows people to have that kind of study and have their lives transformed and have their worship 
exalted higher and higher for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Dr. Adam Chow, who is the president of the Masters University and has overseen the Legacy Standard Bible Project. You can look in our show notes, as always, to find all these links or use your search engine and put Legacy Standard Bible in it, and it will quickly populate a number of ways you can learn about it, a number of ways you can order it. I would encourage you, if you're a little perhaps budget-minded right now, buy one of the uh, lesser expensive ones and get your toe in the water. Take advantage of the online resources that they continue to aggregate. I'm excited about this rendering. I'm excited about this translation. When I have no more margin in my current NASB 95 that I have room to write, that'll be my next text to start using and preaching from and studying from. So thanks for all your work, Abner. Oh, my privilege. Thanks for this time. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.